you want to grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 1, we're going to finish this chapter this morning. Uh, this has been an interesting week uh, for a lot of people. Uh, we've had sickness in our church. Uh, I know people, several people who are not here today will not be here today because of various sickness. And so it's been that sort of week for a lot of people. I, I had a respiratory or sinus infection first part of this week, still dealing with all the fallout from that. If I sound funny, that's the reason. Uh, the other part that makes this week interesting is it's bowl week. I don't know how many football fans be out here, but I absolutely love uh, the last few days of the year and then New Year's Day because some of the best football games you can see and experience throughout the season happen in those few moments. And so uh, it's been fun the last couple of days watching football. And uh, I'm not a Big Ten person. I'm not a Pac-12 person, but I enjoy watching the Rose Bowl each year and and to sit there and watch uh, Ohio State and Utah play no defense whatsoever yesterday and, uh, and go to a 45-47 victory or whatever it was, was, was phenomenal, 48-45. Uh, just fun, fun game to watch. And then, uh, unfortunately, uh, Ole Miss lost last night. But the most important thing is Arkansas won yesterday <laughs> and beat the Penn State Nittany Lions. Didn't just beat them, destroyed them. It was Awesome, awesome, awesome. Love football, love everything about it, and um, just love what, bring, what football brings and the, the camaraderie, the things you learn from the game, the sportsmanship, and, and just the life lessons. One of those lessons you learn from football, really from all sports, is how to lose. No one likes to lose. No one likes to feel the pain of loss, the suffering that comes along with that. And in fact, in sports, no one enjoys the pain and the suffering that comes from a brutal defeat. I mean, there's one thing to kind of lose, uh, you know, you should have lost, you maybe lost by a, a touchdown or so, but when you get this landsided, uh, that, that's really, really hard to take. And October 29th of this fall, two Southern California high school teams uh, met, each other, uh, meet, met each other under the Friday night lights there in Southern Cal and uh, played their hearts out. Inglewood High there in the L.A. area uh, entered the game riding a, a, just a really high wave of momentum. They were 8-0, and and Inglewood Morningside came in with a meager 2-7 and record. It was going to be one of those tough matches for them. And so after the first quarter of <clears throat> that particular game on that Friday night, Inglewood High was up 59 to nothing. I mean, it was, a, it was a gut puncher from the very beginning. When the damage was all said and done and, and the suffering over, Inglewood High had defeated Inglewood Ingle, <clears throat> Morningside 106 to nothing. I mean, it's just one of those games you're like, can we just forfeit now? Can we get off the field? And if you go and read the articles about that, there was a lot of unsportsmanship on the side of the coach from Inglewood High. And I don't want to get in that to this morning, but I, I just want to kind of lay that out there and say that in, in sports, there are these lopsided defeats. And for that reason, we have what's called a mercy rule. A mercy rule kicks in and it kind of speeds up the game. In Virginia, the rule is instituted, for instance, when a 35-point differential is made any time in the second half of the football game. And so in that situation, when there's a, an opponent up 35 points on the other team in the second half of the football game, then there's a running clock. And running clock means that in, during an incomplete pass or when a runner runs out of the bounds, the clock doesn't stop. It keeps running. And the goal there is to minimize the scoring by shortening the length of the game, thus relieving the suffering. Now, I say all that just to kind of highlight the suffering that can, can come from that sort of loss. 
And as we relate that back to what we're seeing here in Luke chapter 1, in Luke chapter 2 as we were uh, looking at on Christmas Eve, we see here that during the early days of the first century, the Jews were living under some very harsh, difficult circumstances. They were longing for relief from their suffering. They were longing for relief from the tyranny that they were under. You see, they had been under the thumbs of various kingdoms for 600 plus years, and Rome was just the latest oppressor. It had started with Babylon, and it moved to uh, other kingdoms, and now it's Rome that's the oppressor. And the, so the Jews had held tightly during this time, and he had been ramping up uh, very greatly during the, the, this century and the century before this, but they were holding tightly to the prophecies of old, those prophecies that spoke of a coming Messiah, anointed one that God was going to send, who would bring freedom and restoration to that once great kingdom known as the kingdom of Israel. And so they yearned for God's mercy. They yearned for God to be merciful, bring it in to their suffering. And as we've seen, as we've looked at this story here in the early part of this gospel, when Zechariah was visited by the angel Gabriel there in the temple, in chapter 1 we read this, the nation of Israel had been living in darkness for 400 years. No prophet had been speaking on behalf of God. There was no voice, no word coming from heaven. The people were living in darkness. They had not heard from God since the days of the prophet Malachi. And so heaven was silent during those centuries as the world's awaiting the coming of of the Lord. The prophet Malachi had even said that the Lord would send a messenger in the spirit of Elijah. And so the people of Israel are longing for that. They're waiting for that. They're believing God for that. This long darkness, they believe, was about to experience sunrise. And, and Zechariah heard what Gabriel was saying, and, he, and it, it, it resonated with him. He believed this. He understood that all that they had been longing for was now coming to fruition, and Zechariah's son, to be born to his barren wife, would be the forerunner of this dawn of light. What we see here is God's sweet mercy being poured out upon his people. God's mercy coming in and relieving them from their suffering. And so if you will, take your Bible and look with me in chapter 1 here in the Gospel of Luke. And let's read verses 57 through the end of the chapter. Then I want to come back and point out three uh, pictures of this gift of God's sweet mercy. Luke says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made sign to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. You could probably put an exclamation point there. It's emphatic. <clears throat> and so they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was loosed and he spoke blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Zechariah begins to prophesy at this point. It says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us 
that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to, get, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And then in verse 8 he tells us, And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Verse 80 is probably this span of about 30 years wrapped up into one verse before John is going to come in public ministry as the forerunner to the Messiah. But as we read this passage here, if you remember what has happened so far, Gabriel has come. He's spoken to Zechariah in the temple. He's spoken of what's going to happen. Now it's been nine months after this. Nine months have passed since Gabriel's encounter with Zechariah in the temple and the promise that he gave about Elizabeth giving birth to a son. And so as it goes with all angels' declarations, anytime an angel comes and visits and says, I'm the messenger of the Lord, here's what the Lord says, here's what the Lord's going to do, as that always takes place, it happened just as he said. Uh, verse 57 is that great reminder that what God says is true and it will take place. It's, it's a reminder for us that we can trust God's word, that God's word is true and trustworthy, and we can take it to the bank. So through the birth of John, the Lord had brought an end to Zechariah's and Elizabeth's suffering. That's one of the things I want us to see in this text. They had suffered greatly for many years, and God brings relief to that. We also see him bringing relief and blessing through Zechariah's faith. He's strengthening that faith. He's strengthening that devotion. And then the Lord began to roll out his gift to humanity, the gift of salvation, the gift of a Messiah, the gift of Christ. And so in all of these verses here, as we end up chapter 1, we see God's sweet mercy. And we need God's sweet mercy in our lives. And so I want to just lay these out before us this morning uh, in three pictures. First of all, the, the first picture of this beautiful gift is the gift of children. The first several verses, 57 through 66, is the, the depiction, the telling of John's birth, his arrival into this world. We see him coming into this world, uh, being born of Elizabeth. And so as I pointed out a few weeks ago, Zechariah and Elizabeth had longed for and prayed for a baby for years, if not decades. They've been asking God, they've been believing God, they've been begging God for him to, uh, to give them a child, to give them a son, and yet she remained barren. I think I told you a few weeks ago that it's more than likely that they had given up at this point, they had prayed and prayed and prayed, and the Lord had seemed to not answer, and, or at least his answer was no, 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 no. And so they get to a point in their life like we do at times, and we just say, all right, I just trust that that's the Lord's will for us, and we're going to give up. We're, we're going to just kind of rest in the fact that we're never going to have a child. And at this point, it just makes biological sense. They, they can't. They're beyond the age of bearing a child. I mean, Zechariah, his own description in chapter 1, verse 18, gives this. He says, for I am old and my wife is advanced in years. He understands that biologically, at some point, you're beyond the age of having a child. And if you could get pregnant, you're beyond the age of wanting to have a child, right? I mean, you're 50, 60, 70 years old. Can you imagine having the energy to 
to, to wrestle a newborn. I mean, we got this little pup in our house the last few weeks. Uh, I think we've had her for three weeks, almost four weeks now, and uh, she's revolutionizing our lives. She's, ha uh, she's excited and, and biting things and tearing things up all the time. I can't imagine uh, doing that with a child at 43. So they're beyond the age of childbearing. They've also suffered because, you know, when early on, uh, maybe Elizabeth's friends would come and say, hey, when are you all going to have children? When do you think about getting pregnant? Are you going to start a family soon? And so those were the questions early on. And as she began to age a little bit, it was more of the sentiment of, hey, we're praying for you. We know you, you and Zechariah want a son. You want a child. We're, we're praying for you. We're praying with you. Now in her old age, people are just kind of whispering, that's Elizabeth. Uh, she's not able to have a child. So they bore the shame, the societal shame, shame of not being able to give birth to children. There are a few significant aspects of this gift that, that I want to highlight here uh, as we talk about God's mercy through the gift of children. First of all, the gift of children brings joy in the home. God visits this couple and, and he mercifully gives them a son and that gift brings joy to their home. Look what verse 58 says. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. Zechariah and Elizabeth are rejoicing. There's joy in their home that they've never known before. And not only are they rejoicing, neighbors and relatives are also rejoicing at the birth of this boy named John. What a glorious thing that was. And again, it happened just as the angel said. The angel always says, this is what's going to happen, and that's what happened. So what we see here is that children are God's great gift of mercy to us. Regardless of the circumstances, God's gift to us as human beings, as adults, as married couples, is our children. And the Jews understood this. They believed that they were a gift from God. They saw them, according to Psalm 127, they saw children as a heritage from the Lord. And so they recognized that they were gifts of mercy from a great God. Israel, thankfully, as God had called them out, they had walked away from the paganism of the nations around them. We see that in Abraham and Moses and then through the kings. They had walked largely away from the paganism uh, of their surrounding neighbors. Who? What did they do? They aborted their babies. They abandoned their babies. They assassinated their babies on the altars of worship to their gods. And so what the Jews did is they rejected all of that and they embraced children as God's gift to his people. Today, America would do well to listen and heed the lessons from this history. You think about what has happened in the last 50 years through abortion uh, being legal here in our nation, the millions of babies who have been uh, aborted, uh, sacrificed, if you will, on the altar of convenience. And so rather than seeing babies as the gifts of joy they are to our homes, what our culture has done is viewed them as something, nothing more, I should say, than, than obstacles that impede our plans for our lives. This is a distorted and devilish perspective that's brought on great destruction to our people. Came across a quote this week that I really think sums up how we ought to view kids. E.T. Sullivan says this about children. He says, the greatest forces in the world are not the earthquakes and the thunderbolts. The greatest forces in the world are babies. They change generations. They change society. They change things. Think about what could have happened in the, through the lives of those children that have been aborted over the last 50 years. Children 
bring joy to the home. Secondly, we see this gift of children brings praise to God. If you look at verse 65 and 66, we see here that, that praise is offered to the Lord. Verse 65, it says that when Zechariah's mouth, his, his tongue was loosed, if you will, he blesses God, he praises God for all of this that has happened. You know, every human being is made in the image and the likeness of God. The very purpose for our existence is to bring praise and honor and worship to the Lord. So every person has this propensity to honor God, to praise Him. And this is true, equally true of this baby boy. He was created, he was born into this world to bring praise and honor to the Lord. After Elizabeth and Zechariah here named the boy John instead of a family name, which is something that Luke uh, points out to us very clearly here, people began to wonder, what kind of person would this be? What kind of boy would this boy, or what kind of man would this boy grow to be? It was obvious that the Lord's hand was on him. Even the name given to John, Yohanan in Hebrew, means that the Lord has given grace. And, and so as the forerunner of the Savior to be, God here is indicating that his mission and, and power would come into this world from outside the natural order. It's going to be <clears throat> outside of what was normal. He alone was mercifully working to bring sinners to salvation. And our children, as we think about them, you know, just put in their own context, they are a gift from the Lord. They belong to Him. And so they all grow up and become what the Lord has for their life. God has a plan for each of our children, and we need to remember that they are a gift in our lives for His praise and for His glory throughout their lifetime. The third thing I'd like to mention here just about the gift of children is that it brings the opportunity to pray and to trust. Verses 59 through 64, then verse 80, as it talks about how he grew and became strong, all of this kind of points to this idea that we as parents, just like Elizabeth and Zechariah, had the opportunity to pray and to trust the Lord with John's future. They were faithful in their obedience to God, faithful in obedience to his word, so they had the boy circumcised. They were good Jews. And so John, Luke here tells us that on the eighth day, they had him circumcised. All male children were circumcised on the eighth day. And so what does this procedure mean for them? Well, it meant that it marks John for a membership in the people of Israel. It marks him as, as one who's going to grow up and live under the word of God, under the laws of God. He's obligated to live under God, the commands God has issued. And with that comes God's blessing. On the eighth day, we also see that parents named their sons. Here, Zechariah and Elizabeth named the boy John instead of that family name of Zechariah like the relatives wanted to give him. So what they did is they recognized this gift was from God as an opportunity for them to pray and to trust the Lord. Rather than saying, thank, thank you, Lord, for the gift of a son. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of no more having shame in our lives because of not being able to have children. But we're going to name him Zechariah because he's my son. No, they said, we're going to follow what the Lord says. We're going to pray for him. We're going to trust the Lord and God's hand upon his life. You think about God's mercy and all of this. He was not obligated to give them a son. His birth was simply the result of God's sweet mercy in their lives. He relieved their suffering. He replaced it with joy. And so in the same way, God is not obligated to give us children. He's not obligated to give us the joy that comes with having children. That is simply a gift of his mercy. So we need to remember that they're God's children, not our children. Hold them loosely. And in that, we pray and we trust God for their future. But there's a second picture 
in this beautiful gift of sweet mercy, and that is the gift of affliction. I love the last song that we just sang there. It speaks so well of what uh, I want to point out here in, in Zechariah's affliction. Look at verse 63. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. We're singing that song. I just kept thinking of this moment here as Luke tells us that in in that split moment where his tongue is loose and he's now able to speak, Zechariah blesses God. He says, in essence, Christ be magnified in my life. Christ be magnified in my home. Christ be magnified in my son's life. Brings us back to ask a question. Why was Zechariah deaf and mute to begin with? Well, it was the result of his disbelief of what Gabriel had shared with him in the temple just nine months prior. He says, how's this going to happen? My wife's barren. And Gabriel says, because you've not believed, you're not going to be able to speak. The language there would also lead us to believe that he couldn't hear. So throughout Elizabeth's pregnancy, the only way Zechariah could communicate, like we see here in this passage, is through a writing tablet. He's the first person in all of history to have a tablet. Maybe not, because Moses had one, right? He had the stone tablets. My, my, my daughters are always on the weekend, like, it's tablet day, it's Friday, it's tablet day. It's, we, we just let them play on tablets or whatever on the weekends. And so uh, Zechariah here is playing on a tablet, but he's writing. Can you imagine the frustration would have, this would have created in their home? The, the suffering that it would have brought to him personally. And he hears the wonderful news that his wife's going to get pregnant, and as he comes out of the temple, he can't even communicate that properly. He can't even tell his wife. He's got to transcribe it on a tablet. He wants to tell his buddies down the road about his wife who's going to get pregnant because he's, no long, he's never had that opportunity before. Can you imagine all the frustration that would have been in the home while he's been given this honeydew list and he can't even tell her that he's finished them because he's got to write it on a tablet. There's all kinds of problems that are in the home and during this time because he could not speak or hear. He suffered greatly. But through all of it, however, it seems what was taking place in Zechariah was that he never gave up. He suffered well. He endured the affliction. Here's what we know about suffering. It has a way of making a person either bitter or better. And in Zechariah's life, it seems to have made him better. You see, when God restored his speech and restored his ability to hear, what does he do? Does he shake his fist at the Lord and say, finally, you let me hear and speak? No, he blesses God. He praises God. I love how J.C. Ryle offers some insight on this moment in Zechariah's life. He says this, Zechariah shows that his nine months of dumbness had not been inflicted on him in vain. He's no longer faithless, but believing. He now believes every word that Gabriel had spoken to him, and every word of his message shall be obeyed. So let us take heed that affliction do us good as it did to Zechariah. He says, sanctified afflictions are spiritual promotions. Listen to that. Sanctified afflictions are spiritual promotions in our life. That's what's happening in Zechariah. The sorrow that humbles us, the sorrow that drives us nearer to the Lord is a blessing and a downright gain. No case is more hopeless than that of a man who in a time of affliction turns his back upon God. That's what J.C. Ryle is pointing out from Zechariah's life. Will we allow our affliction to make us better or allow it to make us bitter? This affliction was God's merciful gift 
that resulted in increased faithfulness and devotion in Zechariah's life. But there's a third picture that I want to share with you about this beautiful gift. That is the gift of salvation. We see here the blessing of children. We see the blessing of affliction in this whole process and how that's God's merciful hand of just moving in people's lives. But then Zechariah steps back from all this and he gives this wonderful prophecy. He gives this wonderful song, much like Mary has given about what the Lord has done in her life. Now Zechariah is offering it about what God is going to do through his son and how that's going to lead into the Messiah coming through this gift of salvation. So in response to God's mercy to him, Zechariah prophecies about the world receiving salvation. He talks about it in three parts. First of all, I just want to point out the plan. Verses 68 through 73, uh, Zechariah kind of offers this plan of salvation. He recognized that John's birth was connected to God's plan to visit his people. It wasn't some random thing. It wasn't some new thing. It was always in line with everything God had been saying, everything God had been doing, everything God's prophets had, had been foretelling. His, God, his plan had always been to visit and to redeem his people through the horn, Zechariah says, of salvation. The horn that he would raise up from the house of David. And so this coming Messiah was not going to be a random person. No, it was going to be specifically God's anointed Messiah coming in the line of what the prophets had been foretelling. This is the story of the Bible, is it not? God's visitation, God's coming to us from Genesis to Revelation. What we see in this is the meta-narrative, the grand story of Scripture is God's redemption. It's salvation. God is on a mission to visit. God is on a mission to rescue sinful people from the darkness and the destruction of their sin. This plan involves a physical rescue. Verse 71 talks about that, ties it to the physical rescue of Israel, physical rescue of God's people, but largely the rescue is spiritual in nature. You see, in mercy, God rescues sinners from the domain of darkness, and Colossians 1.13 tells us he transfers them into the kingdom of his light. That's the plan in the gift of salvation. But here's the purpose. Verses 72 through 75 lays out the purpose in all of this. Why is God bringing salvation to his people? Zechariah recognized that John's birth was in conjunction with his purpose, that it was, again, not a random thing. He's working not just to make people's lives better. God is working to make people's lives holy. God's working to make people's lives right with him so that they could be a worshiper of God. Thank God that when Jesus comes into our lives, he doesn't leave us the same. He transforms us, right? We sing about that. Uh, if, if life brings transformation, right? It's going to be that resurrection life. It's going to be that life that's in Christ. And so in all of this, the purpose is worship. Look at verse 74. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him with fear. The idea there is worship, that we're coming and serving the Lord. But then it leads to peace. God redeems his people so that we might worship him, but that he does something in us and between us and God the Father. He brings peace. Lays this out in verses 77 through 79. You know, as we just said, salvation is largely spiritual in nature. Yes, there's going to be a physical resurrection. There's going to be a physical transformation. There's going to be a physical uh, movement to heaven and then heaven on earth. There's, there's a new heavens and new earth, but largely it's spiritual in nature. And so in that, it, it involves the forgiveness of our sins. That's our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is not that we have 
that we're too short or we're too tall or we're too large or we don't have enough education or we, don't ha- we have too much education. Our biggest problem is sin. And sin is an offense against God. It's a rejection of his word. It's a rejection of his rule. It's Genesis 3 all over again. Every single day in our lives, uh, we deal with sin. It's rebellion against him. It's, a, uh, it's an offense to his holiness. And then his holiness and his justice demands that he punish that sin. And so what's happening in our lives is that as sinners, we are at war with God. We're at war with the God who's created us. Sin's broken our relationships as well. You know, as we talk about how to share the gospel with people, we talk about how God's designed us, right? Perfectly to relate to him. He wants to be in relationship with us, but we have a problem. It's sin. And what sin does to us and what sin does among us is it brings brokenness. And so our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with one another is broken. Even within our own being, our own person, there's brokenness, emotional and physical brokenness in our lives. And what Jesus comes, what the mercy of God offers us in salvation is peace. Peace with God, peace with others, peace with ourselves. An inner transformation begins to take place. These first century Jews that Luke is recording here in this gospel lived in a defeated state. They were suffering under the tyrannical rule of Rome. We might say that they were, in essence, down 106 to nothing. They were defeated. They were suffering greatly. Israel was not defeated because they could not fight, right? Israel was once the power in that region of the world. When King David was on the throne, when King Solomon was on the throne, no one dared to mess with Israel. They could fight. But what we see in that is it wasn't their fight. It wasn't them fighting. It was God fighting on their behalf. God now has not necessarily abandoned his people, but he's allowed them to be put into bondage. Why? Because they had walked away from him. They were under the hand of his judgment. The story of John's birth here reveals God's sweet mercy as he works to relieve that suffering through the Messiah. Israel's big problem was not Rome. Their big problem was their perpetual rebellion against God, just like us. Our big problem is not because we don't have enough money in the bank or we don't have the opportunities we need. Our big problem is we consistently say no to what God would have us to do. And that rebellion brings judgment. God loves us. And he has sent his son. He sent a Messiah. And here what we see, a forerunner leading up to the Messiah to call people back, to show God's mercy toward them, to help them understand the depravity of their hearts, to understand that they're warring against the wrong person. They should be warring against evil. They should be warring against sin. should be warring against flesh in their life. But instead, they're warring against God. And God is sending John here. And he's blessing Zechariah and Elizabeth, and he's given us this picture to help us understand that God is merciful, that he's good, and he gives us this beautiful gift of salvation. This beautiful gift even of affliction as believers to lead us and train us in holiness and righteousness. The gift of children and the joy that they bring into our homes. God is merciful. On this first Sunday of the year, I wonder how well we recognize that mercy. Do we recognize how merciful he's been to us? This is an opportunity for us to recommit ourselves. I'm 
probably say this every New Year. Um, I understand that New Year's resolutions, a lot of times, are nothing more than a New Year's resolution, right? I'm going to do this. I'm going to charge hard. Tomorrow morning, I'll be back in the gym. There will be a whole lot more of people there that I've never seen before, and in three weeks, they won't be there anymore. We understand all of that. But as I've kind of set up or maybe said when I was talking about the offering earlier, you can't ever finish at the backside of a plan and say, wow, we did this if you don't first start the plan. So on this first Sunday of this year, we have an opportunity here to commit and to pray for and to trust the Lord with our kids. Maybe in a way that we've never known before. Maybe, you know, maybe you got one cooking in the oven, right? What is this child going to be? What's this child going to grow up to be? How are we as parents going to form and to shape this kid? Let's begin to pray and to trust the Lord for that. We have an opportunity, new year, new start, to start well. We have a new opportunity to think about the affliction and sufferings that we've been enduring. What, what is it we're learning? I mean, just as a nation, as a, as a church, as we walk through what seems like a never-ending COVID season, what are we to learn from all of this? Do we continue to just get frustrated? I've been frustrated for two years. It's really not brought any joy in my life. So how, how do we respond to that? better, right? Rather than being bitter, how do we respond better? God's been merciful to us in this affliction. What have we learned about his goodness and his grace through it? And then as we think about salvation, on this first Sunday of the year, God has been speaking maybe to some of you for a long time saying, hey, come home. As a Christian, as someone who's in relationship with me, but you've been walking at a guilty distance, man, come home. Throw away the sin, the things that entangle you, and come home. Repent of those things. But maybe as a person who've never given your life to the Lord before, and he's saying, now's the time for that. That's the mercy of God. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve the gift of salvation. You don't deserve the gift of affliction. God should just wipe the scene and wipe it clean of your life right now. It should just take you out. That's what you deserve. He doesn't, you don't deserve the gift of children, but he gives you those. And so do we recognize his mercy in our lives. This morning, I don't know how that hits you, but the Bible always gives us good news. The good news that God loves us, good news that he cares for us, good news that he's created us for himself. Obviously, the bad news is we're sinners and we want to do it our own way. And the best news is, is God says, hey, dummy, listen, you can't do it that way. I've done it for you. I've paid the penalty. I'm offering forgiveness. Will you receive it. So let's pray. And if the Lord's speaking in your life in a certain way, we're going to sing in just a moment as we always do. And, and uh, maybe you need to respond publicly. I mean, we're in a different scene and setting, but we're going to, we're going to roll on as normal as possible. And so I just want to try, pray and, and ask that you would trust the Lord during this time to respond as he's leading you. Father, this morning, just want to recognize that you are so good to us. We are blessed people. Our church is a blessed church. Our community is a blessed community. We live in a blessed nation. And yet we, we can look around and we can point out so many things that if, if we're honest, we would acknowledge and, and say that there's no reason we should be blessed. God, I highlighted earlier just the atrocities of abortion in our country. And Lord, why do you continue to to bless us as a country with such evil. 
That's on a macro level. It's on a national level. But Lord, trickle it down to our own lives. And if we were to be honest and take a true assessment of ourselves, we would recognize that there's things in our own hearts. That from a logic, logical perspective ought to negate any blessing coming from heaven. There's no reason you should bless us. no reason you should be good to us. We're not worthy of it. And yet, Lord, you continue to be merciful, not giving us what we deserve. Father, I pray on this first Sunday of this new year, as we think about what's coming for us the next 12 months, how do we start right and finish strong? Father, I pray that as we look at our kids, at grandkids, may we see them as a gift from the Lord. May we trust you with them. May we pray on their behalf. May we work to instill the word of God in their lives. Just recognize the joy that they bring and just celebrate that and bring honor and praise and glory to you, Lord. Thank you for the gift of children. I thank you, Lord, for the gift of affliction. On this first Sunday of the year, what do we need to learn? about the suffering that some have been going through. It's not that we've been going through it. Lord, this year for some people, there will be a new affliction. And how will we endure that? Will we throw our hands up in despair? Will we get mad and rebel? Will we no longer trust you? How do we respond to affliction? God, I pray that we would model Zechariah's faith and that through it and then on the backside of it, we would bless you, that we would allow it to make us better as a believer, more faithful, more devoted, more trusting rather than better. And then, Father, I pray for those who need to embrace the gospel this morning, Christians who are walking into guilty distance. What's the hope for them? It's embracing the gospel. It's not being saved again. But it's saying, you know what? I need forgiveness. I need to turn from this sin. I need to repent. I need to walk. Uh, I, I need to go and to walk as I used to. For some, it means I need to, to, to be saved. I need to trust the Lord as my Savior. And so as we move into a time of response for the next few minutes, Lord, just set those things upon our hearts. And Lord, us, Lord lead us to make the decisions you're leading us to make. We pray in Jesus' name. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.